Welcome to the Root of the Cause radio show. I'm your host, Dove, and today's going to be the final installment of my three-part series with Dr. Mensa. I also want to add to please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Root of the Cause podcast is solely informational in nature, so please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatments that we discuss on the show. Now, if you enjoy the content on today's episode, please follow me on Apple Podcast. Now, to do that, just click that plus sign at the top right of your screen, just above the show logo. I'd also love to hear feedback, so it would be super awesome if you left a review as well as a five-star rating. It really helps out a lot. Well, I hope you guys enjoy the show. I now present to you part three with Dr. Mensa. Regarding whole blood histamine, because it's such a practical marker, right, and so, it's so reasonably priced, could you, without doing the SAM to SAR ratio, which takes a much, much deeper dive, could you quantify the severity of the undermethylator by how high the whole blood histamine? Meaning if someone's level is 100, they're an undermethylator, but the person who's 120 is that much more? Or is it not that simple? No, actually, it, it, you're, you're, it's pretty much that kind of simple. But let me give you a range caveat. Sure. So we tend to say someone who has a, a test result of 70, say 85, those are all pretty much the same intensity of, mm-hmm. of undermethylation. Okay. A 76 doesn't mean you're any more undermethylated than a 70. Okay. But when you now move into the 90 range, that's a different category. When you move into the 110 range and above, that's a different category. When you're in the 150, 180 range, that's like, you know, out there in the stratosphere. Hmm. That's a totally different thing. And you see different conditions yeah. as you move along in that spectrum. Okay. Yeah. So somebody who's got, for example, OCD, they're usually way, way, way high. Somebody who's got schizophrenia, they're usually on the higher side of that high range. So very simply, yes. You can do, you often, do you often see when someone's in the stratosphere with whole blood histamine, that I would presumably, from based on what you just said, the likely that their symptoms like OCD, depression, so forth, have a much higher likelihood. But would you also then see hyperperformance such as an Elon Musk, for example? Like I would venture that his whole blood histamine is probably ungodly high, but he's also kind of a weirdo. So you know, so I'm just you know I'm just saying. Um, it, would that be like an intuitive presumption on your part for, let's just say someone like Elon Musk? There is an intuitive construct here to a certain degree. Okay. What happens though, is that the higher you get, actually the more pathology you get that it, that actually inhibits your functionality. Okay. So you may see that, that genius person, 70, 75, maybe that person, you know, 80, 85, but somewhere around that range now, pathology, depression, anxiety, OCD, um, schizophrenia potentials, mm. severe depression. Now, what happens when you've got that severe depression, Doug, is now you start to drink or you, you, drug, you do drugs, you smoke, self-medicate. you self-medicate, and that takes you away from your natural directive. So most people with histamine levels that high who are that kind of undermethylated, pretty much self-destruct long before they get to mm. be those wonderful geniuses that everyone gets to know. Mm. So right. would you say, obviously neither of us know, I'm just using him as an example, but 
the drug of choice for someone like uh, an overachiever like an Elon Musk is his, you could argue his drug of choice instead of going to the bottle or to drugs, but productivity, innovation then becomes the drug that perhaps would drive that, especially with the intellect that he has. It's um, more that it's more that it's his his push, his lack of, of methyl balance that doesn't let him stop. Okay. It's not his way to compensate. It's his pushing direction mechanism. He, he's like, I'm sorry, that ion uh, engine that over time continually gets more and more acceleration in space. You can tell what my hobbies have been the last few nights. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's been one where there's no stop, so it continually accelerates more and more and more and more and more. Gotcha, gotcha. Undermethylated brain is one that can be just very powerfully directed. And the only thing that's really going to sort of soothe that, if there is anxiety, depression, etc., most people turn to self-medication with drugs or alcohol or some other type of capacity. Do you often see a correlation with these undermethylators who are severely undermethylated with that tendency for their brain to constantly be activated do you see that those people tend to have a higher intellect, higher IQ that could actually drive that motor? I mean, you, you've obviously interpreted so many labs that you'd be a good person to ask. They're usually very bright people, but I want to share something very interesting. So there are versions of intellect, and of course, can't very well qualify someone's intellectual capacity. I want to talk about for a minute an overmethylated person. Okay. Because an overmethylated person has this hyperstimulated brain that does not shut down. These are the creative individuals. Mm-hmm. See, they can't shut down to the point where they're starting to think totally in a different way and sometimes very powerfully. They're both brilliant, is the point, but they activate that brilliance in a different way. They channel that brilliance very differently. So the undermethylators, because they tend to be very regimented individuals, are not those people who are going to come up with the creative ideas. Give them the foundation, they may take it to the moon. Oh, but right, right, gotcha. An overmethylated person will create a different foundation and take that into the stratosphere, okay? So high IQ, yes, but most of the time, an overmethylated person won't care to really indulge that concept and so may not even think right, about that. Right. Well, other there's, method- there's that saying, there's the person who comes up with the concept of the painting, there's the person who paints the painting, and then there's the person who sells the painting. And yeah. they, all three of them have three different gifts, intellects, and areas of focus, but they're all sort of needed in life. So, yeah. Correct. But it's yeah. that inability to stop oneself that leads to that ongoing achievement for another method later. Okay? Mm. They, they are never satisfied, and perfectionism is an underlying piece that's so key. Mm. And that's what mm. continually drives them to excel through higher levels of education. So if I may ask, if you're comfortable sharing, where do you fall in that spectrum, if you will? You don't have to answer that, but I have a feeling I know. Well, let, let me tell you, um, I never, I almost never answered that question. And uh, the reason you gave why... gave yourself wiggle room because you said almost. <laughs> it, it's, it's one of those things where... Um, it's one of those things where I tease my staff and my patients... Um, it's almost an inside joke. Mm. Uh, just about everybody else that we've worked with uh, knows their the methylation status. And I simply have refused to test. 
but I could tell you some things about. Oh, you've never you've never actually house. done the test on yourself. No. Oh wow! No, I've done it on my father. I've done it on my daughters, but I've never actually done the test on me. But if I told you my, my dad's chemistry and my daughter's chemistry, you might get a pretty solid idea. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Or if anyone's spoken to you as well, they could get a good idea. I'm just saying. Maybe. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to actually change gears real quick. I know there's um with regard to nutrients and under methylators. I know you in particular have spoken about the use of calcium supplementation actually with under methylators, and I just kind of want to go over that briefly on like how that works. And also there's a lot of concern regarding calcium supplementation in terms of cardiovascular health as well as kidney health, even when magnesium is balanced to like with the calcium to sort of counterbalance that. So what are your thoughts, A, on the concerns and B, what's the mechanism that calcium would actually help with an undermethylator? Okay, so I want you to think about that balance. That's why I always like to talk about that teeter-totter thing. Yeah. between histamine and methyl, right? So what calcium does, it helps to lower histamine, okay? So it's an indirect mechanism effect with regard to um, to, to methyl molecules. If you lower the, if you remove the antagonist, you let the agonist do its thing. So you've got calcium, which helps to lower that histamine um, and therefore, now methyl can rise to the surface. You want to increase methyl under methylation. Okay. So just, I'm trying to tease this out. So, But if histamine is a result of low methyl, then artificially lowering the histamine isn't, like, would that, no, wouldn't that, that wouldn't really help with methylation. That, no, it's right? not a result of, okay. It's, it's the, the balance, remember, is in the perfect world, you've got histamine at this level, you've got methyl at this level. That's uh -huh. the balance. Right? right, and remember, if one gets higher, it kind of pushes the other one lower. Okay, mm, so okay. high histamine, and you want to help 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 raise methyl. Yeah, calcium will help to lower histamine. That will allow methyl to rise on its own. Gotcha. Okay? You're almost giving it space in a sense. Yeah, it's not a direct mechanism; it's an yeah. indirect. Mechanism. That calcium. makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, no, that that. Yeah. That's perfect, yeah. What about the, other, the concerns? The other thing is that calcium in other parts of the body helps to create calming. High histamine people who've got anxiety, and most of them do, calming is what calcium does at by a different hmm. mechanism altogether. But you're all this one machine. You've got all this stuff going on, so maybe one element that works over here and over here and over here actually helps to balance you. Now, hmm. The difficulty comes in if you've got, yes, if you've got kidney issues, then calcium or excess calcium is a, a challenging thing. Um, sometimes, even if you've got cardiovascular issues, you've got to be careful because calcium is very what's called a complex of calcium and something else called calmodulin. That complex together inside the, the heart cell allows your heart to contract. But right. you don't want to have too much of that because then you can create what's called Ooh, stagnation and, and almost a tetanic response whereby these muscles just freeze. The cells freeze and you don't get you know, heart beating activity. Right. And that's, that's where magnesium comes into play, right? To, to sort of Correct. balance that. Okay. Correct. So you just so got to be careful with calcium. You have to be, this is why, you know, you've got to have a, a doctor working with all these mechanisms. You really okay. Do. 
Okay. So I wanted to really, we're, we're almost out of time, but I wanted, I had a couple more questions if you're cool with that. I wanted to mention the polymorphism COMT. Like we kind of mentioned MTHFR and we spoke about that a little bit, but COMT is one that I'm interested in because it's basically an enzyme and a gene that helps to methylate estrogen metabolites. And the cofactor is SAMe. So given that the cofactor of COMT is SAMe, could you sort of extrapolate that when looking at the whole blood histamine and assume that if whole blood histamine is high, you whether you have a gene polymorphism COMT or not, you could sort of assume that that your COMT levels are not working up to par, which could result in potential estrogen-related issues? You're a very logical person, and I like that about you, Doug. It is a very, I'm going to use that term again, a very logical thought, but the difficulty here is that you've got about a million variables in between those two. Mm -hmm. For example, when you talk about estrogen, copper is highly involved. And when you're talking about copper, now, everything from other elements in the system, like zinc, like um, iron, like magnesium, um, like vitamin C, are all coming into play. So it's not a, a, a simple thing. First of all, the COMT, COMT um, enzyme and the polymorphisms associated, very viable, okay? Very, very viable in the assessments that are given and used in medicine to determine you know, what, where the problems are and how you use them. Unlike MTHFR, which I've talked about before, I would get into it now. Yeah. But the COMP is, is real. And those do have to be assessed. But the other thing is you don't know what SAM is doing directly. You can't assume from a whole blood histamine what SAM itself is doing, either in concentration or activity. And that's where it starts to kind of shift in terms of absolute assumptions that can be made yeah. relative to just one test with the whole blood right. histamine. You really so have to test the So it's really, if I'll give an analogy, it's almost like if you get a blood test and you're, if you're, go to the doctor, you're sick, right? And he says, he or she says, your white blood cell is elevated, thus you have an infection. He doesn't know what kind of infection. He doesn't know if it's viral, bacterial, or fungal. He just knows you have an infection, but without going under the hood and really doing further testing, you don't know which virus it is or bacteria and so forth, and you don't necessarily know how to treat it without guessing. Okay. That's yeah. Okay. Interesting. So let me ask with, with regards to folate and people who are under methylators, do you almost view folate as something that, how should I put this? Do you almost try to, I guess, induce a subtle folate deficiency, meaning ensure that they have enough folate to let's say, perform all the necessary physiological functions of the body, but nothing in excess of that, such that if you were to, let's say, do a white blood cell analysis of the folate levels via, let's say, a spectrocell or an organic acid like Figlu and so forth, would you almost want to see the lower end of normal in those individuals or perhaps even a subtle deficiency? That's a great question. And again, a very logical question. (laughs) But the challenges are that we're not, I, I, I talked to, when we were training doctors, Yeah, I told doctors, first of all, you guys are too smart for your own good as you overthink things. And then you don't have appropriate emphasis in other areas. So I, I, let me share with you how this is working here. Yeah. 
when we're looking at these kind of mechanisms, it's not about how much is present. So you do a, a folate assay and it tells you here's in their numbers in the range. Well, look, if you're undermethylated, you just don't need any excess, and that's where you're, that's your starting point. Okay. But here's the deal. It's not about the folate, it's about the fact that you're depleted in methyl. So as an undermethylator, give the person the methyl you need, let the folic acid do what it does, okay? because your body needs it. Okay? What we share with you is don't supplement with extra folic mm -hmm. acid. Don't eat a diet rich in folates, because right now it's very clear your folate methionine balance is totally off. It has to be if you're an undermethylator. Mm -hmm. You're going to have more folate than you do methionine. That's one of the problems. So we give the methionine to raise the balance and to even go higher. We don't need to disrespect, I hate to say this, as some of the gangster movies would say, you don't need to disrespect the folate. <laughs> gotcha. You just don't want to uh, overemphasize. You don't need to take it out. Let it do its thing. Give the system what it needs. Yeah. Okay. Give the system what it needs, which is the methyl, right? Okay. So now in doing so, you, you, you said something very important. The body needs folic acid to function. Let no one fool you. Absolutely, it does. So get it from your dietary sources. But if you know you're undermethylated, just don't go to the extremes in your diet. Look, I hate to tell you this. You're not designed to be a vegetarian or a vegan if you're undermethylated. Mm. You are not. Not if you've got a mental health condition. Okay? Anxiety, yeah. depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, blah, blah, blah. Now, if you're a Joe Schmo walking down the street and you know, you're doing whatever and you're fine and you like your veggies but you've got no other issues, then, you know, feel free. Go out and graze in the grass. You know, eat whatever you want to eat. You know, it's all vegetable. But if you're having challenges, you can't do that. So the idea is not to try to actively deplete your folate. Just don't over supplement with folate. Gotcha. When you're okay. That makes that makes sense. That's that makes sense. So, Doctor Menza, with the individuals who are, I guess you could call them the more balanced types. They're not overmethylators. They're not undermethylators. So, with those individuals, given that they are more balanced, they don't have an issue with serotonin in the synapse binding to the receptor. If an individual like that is, let's say, having depression, significant depression, I would imagine that's more of a circumstantial thing that would pass. Do you think those are the individuals that a lot of the functional medicine integrative community are focused on in terms of the demonization of an SSRI, meaning they don't necessarily need it per se, in terms of chemically need it, they're just trying to mask an event, whereas the undermethylator might actually need it biochemically because they're not balanced, right? They on an undermethylator on the SSRI, assuming the dose is appropriate, or let's say on SAMI in combination or just SAMI, might actually be like the balanced person on nothing. And so if they take it, it might be, let's say, you could call it an abuse. And, you know, I'm not taking a stance on that one way or another, but what are your thoughts on that? And in a balanced type, how do you then sort of treat them if they're already balanced, if they're well, complaining of depression? Or I, think I think your analogy is very appropriate. And let me just kind of summarize to make sure I've got it correct. You know, somebody who's an undermethylator on a pharmaceutical agent 
achieve similar balance to somebody who's normally balanced who doesn't need a pharmaceutical agent. But right. now if there's a request, then the idea is that there was a, a situation or an environmental uh, insult to lead to the bad depression. I want to right. give you a third option as well. Okay. The third option is that there's a different chemistry causing that depression. We've been talking about methylation, but there are quite a few others that can produce depression, especially if you're female. Okay. High levels of estrogen. You brought up the copper thing and estrogen. Well, it's the copper that increases as a result of high estrogen that can lead to depression, anxiety, impulsivity, agitation, rage, severe mood swings, postpartum depression, depression, and postpartum psychosis in females. So many females will sit down and say, listen, it's what you just described, Doug. I have a wonderful life. I've got a great spouse. I've got beautiful kids. I'm wealthy. I have nothing that I need. I've got everything I need, but I'm depressed. Why is that? And their methylation is not the issue. There it's copper because of excessive estrogen and inability to get rid of estrogen. And Doug, that is 35% of all females walking this planet. Wow. They have these challenges and they don't know that their bodies can't get rid of this copper that is accumulated over their lifetimes. So option three is there's a different chemical imbalance that's in play. Okay. Mm, okay. And, that makes and when you're dealing with those chemical imbalances, Dove, you don't get correction by the use of SSRIs or even benefit from the use of atypical antipsychotics. They don't work because the issue is not a serotonin manipulative system. So if someone has an appropriate level of whole blood histamine and they're complaining of depression, even severe depression, do you just as a reflex don't even go down the path of considering SSRIs or SAMI or any of those, the typical antipsychotics or things that would treat traditionally depression, you just automatically go down another route, be it copper dysregulation, estrogen, or whatever the other options are just to save time and be efficient? We do it all simultaneously. So we consider everything depending on the person. Okay. Um, if, if methylation looks low, we've already ordered these other tests that can tell us what the other main causes of depression or whatever have you might be. So we have all those answers in front of us. So now the question becomes, well, hey, you know, you've got, let's just say you're extremely deficient in zinc. All right. Mm. So looking at how you're functioning right now, are you suicidal? Are you mildly depressed? Are you moderately depressed? Are you functional at work? Do you have a job? You know, all those things yeah, yeah. Come to play in that decision algorithm. Okay. And so we take a very global look and a very specific look at each patient to determine which way we go next. Now, okay. when you've got a person who's got this other chemical imbalance, their symptoms are quite characteristically different than that of undermethylation or overmethylation for that matter. So even if you've got somebody who's a high histamine person, this constellation of symptoms over here says that's not the primary cause. Mm. That may be insult to injury, but it's not the primary cause. And so mm. we're in this direction. So we're not going to say go out and get an SSRI. We're not going to tell you not to. You know, talk to your psychiatrist about that. But we know that in the work we're doing, our molecular target, target number one, is going to be that other chemistry. We'll deal gotcha. with the population as a supportive piece but it's not going to be the primary target. So we've got three categories, I would say. Okay. Um, gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So 
I'm just curious regarding SSRIs. There's a lot of these uh, genetic tests out there that indicate almost like a antibiotic sensitivity test that you would do, like to determine which one you're most sensitive to. Do you think those tests are? Do you think there's some legitimacy to those tests to cater which of the many SSRIs would be better for that particular person's genetics? Most people hear me talk about the fallacies of a lot of these tests that are out there. And this time, I actually have to say quite the opposite. Mm. Those tests tend to have quite a bit of validity. Is um, there one in particular that you're comfortable naming that you stand by as, as, or a few? There, I would say, quite honestly, the bulk of them do a very good job in terms of assessing which kind of medication you'd be most susceptible to and which kinds you would not be. They do a very, very good job as a group of tests. Mm. I don't want to okay. see anyone out in particular. Yeah. The ones that I'm, I'm familiar with, they don't necessarily tell you if you should be on one that targets dopamine versus serotonin, but they'll say for SSRIs, this SSRI out of the many is more geared for you. That's what you're referring to, right? That is correct. Okay. That is exactly correct. Okay. And those okay, have, cool. they've got great, but the only challenge comes in is if they're assuming that the issue, uh, the reason why they're even testing these medications is that these medications will be of use for you and because the major fallacy lies with using these drugs to treat them. Yeah. Okay, the problem. And that might not be the case. It doesn't right. mean that the drug was the wrong choice. It means that that entire concept of using the drug was the wrong choice. But the right, drugs- right, right, right. Probably my last question, then we'll wrap up. I really appreciate you taking all this time. I know you're a busy man. I wanted to ask you something specific now about SSRIs, right? So as you probably know, many in the functional medicine world have concerns over SSRI medications. A lot of people people have gone out of their way to sort of demonize them. And I, I think their biggest concern is they feel if you continually block the reuptake of serotonin, you're then forcing it to stay in the synapse for far longer than it otherwise would, thereby enabling serotonin to constantly bind to the receptor, leading to an eventual downregulation of those receptors. And the concern is that this would sort of render the medication less and less effective over time. Like we all know this, but essentially my question is, A, do you share in those concerns regarding receptor downregulation? And B, you know, my thought is if an undermethylator has an already reduced ability to naturally block reuptake anyway, wouldn't it then sort of stand to reason logically that by blocking reuptake in those individuals that have an impaired ability to do it naturally, the risk of that receptor down regulation would be mitigated and perhaps merely create the balance that they would sort of otherwise have if their methylation was imbalanced in the first place? I know that was a mouthful, but what are, you, like, what are your thoughts on that? First of all, I don't worry about that concept. I'm going to tell you that right now. Okay. Uh, the reason is because you're presuming that you're going to have serotonin out there in an infinite capacity yeah. to do infinite damage. You don't. Everything is broken down in the system. It's not just reuptake. There's degradation. Okay, your DNA degrades every day. It has required repair mechanisms involved in that. The the serotonin that's out there has, has still got to be activated. It's still got to mm-hmm. be activated. If you're undermethylated, that doesn't happen. Okay, so and then it has to be produced. See, yeah, they're, yeah, what they're thinking is you're going to keep this serotonin out there, and production is going to continue, 
And so you're going to have this gradual buildup and buildup when you use an SSRI. In the synapse buildup, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't happen that way. Yeah. Okay? The question is what people forget, especially the ones who make these pharmaceutical drugs. Remember, we talked about three phases. We talk about production, activation, and destruction. What we do in orthomolecular medicine, we focus on production. Give the system what it needs to make the neurotransmitter in the first place. Look, an easy one. If you're zinc deficient, you're not going to make serotonin. I got news for you. Mm. Forget. As well as B6 as well. Absolutely. But zinc alone is powerful enough. Okay? Mm. Without zinc, you don't have neurotransmitter production. You don't get happy people. Okay? Mm. Same can be said, I hate to put it this way, for lithium, the natural agent of lithium. Now, don't go out and take lithium and all that other stuff. I'm just saying that without zinc, you don't get proper uh, uh, serotonin production. Mm-hmm. You, don't get, you don't get proper GABA production. So most people walking this earth are zinc deficient. Here's a wonderful little game. Look at your fingernails. If you see white spots on your fingernails, you're zinc deficient. Yeah, yeah. I've so do you, do you do you also advocate for, I mean, because let's be honest, tryptophan is the precursor to 5-HTP, which is the precursor to serotonin, and tryptophan is not that easy to come by. So even if you're getting, let's say, an ample amount in your diet and you have an inability to convert tryptophan to 5-HTP because you have a polymorphism or let's say you have inflammation and so forth, do, do you think it would be beneficial in those individuals to supplement as well with 5-HTP, even on an SSRI, which is thought to be, you know, blasphemy. Now, are you using zinc or are you not using zinc? You're using zinc. In that scenario? Yeah. You don't need it. Zinc is the most powerful of the of the drivers for the production of serotonin. Zinc okay. by itself. Okay. okay. And I'm not just talking about, once again, theory. We, we've been there, done that. The research was yeah. there before, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you give zinc, you drive several mechanisms, several, yeah. that will ultimately enhance serotonin, not just one. So if you're doing that now, okay, so if you don't have zinc, you don't have serotonin production. You don't have, it eventually starts to degrade. Forget reuptake, it degrades. And then you don't have anything to reuptake block in the first place. Right. So you can't accumulate that if you're zinc deficient. It simply right. doesn't work that way. So what many people don't realize, and many of us in medicine don't realize, is that the vast majority of people in this country are zinc deficient. Okay? Right. So sure. these things that we're hyper-focusing on, it doesn't, it's not like that. Okay? Yeah. For a variety of reasons that we're not paying attention to. That's the problem. Yeah. So you know, if somebody has got an SSRI need because they are severely depressed and they can't go to work or whatever have you. You know what? My perspective is you give it to them. It doesn't have to be forever, but until you can get their system worked out and balanced, then you, you give them what it takes to do the job. Now, for the record, most people who hear me speak, hear me speak about not using pharmaceutical medications, but there's a time and a place for everything for yeah. the most part. And you've got to know the specific circumstances of that person. Yeah. It's not a blanket one size fits all. But I think there's way too much over-focus on what's happening at the receptor site because that's pharmacology. Mm. Let's get back to biochemistry. Balance what's in the system. Here's the thing, Dove. If you balance 
the molecular aspects of the system, you don't have to worry about receptor sites. I think, that make, I, I think that makes sense. So if I may real quick, and then we'll wrap up if um, I know I've said that a few times, huh? if I just want to play devil's Africa for just a second and you have production, right? We're talking about production, right? And zinc helps with production. But yeah. so let's say I think of production as the conveyor belt, right? So get the conveyor belt to work. Is it plugged in? Is the machinery working? Right. But if you don't have the ingredients and the ingredients would be tryptophan converting to 5-HTP, even if that conveyor belt is working really robustly, don't you still have a problem if you don't, are low on the ingredients that actually make whatever that thing is that you're making in the first place? That's why I'm, I was harping on something I, like 5-HTP. I, I get that. The thing is that, once again, when we're looking at the components that move into the production of this from step mm -hmm. to step, step the body is ridiculously efficient it can take this and turn it into this okay so if if 5-htp were such a main player for example most people would do very well and better on it significantly with perhaps just a little bit of zinc or a deficiency of zinc doesn't work that way but we have seen over and over and over again, empirically and in the research, you give this amount of zinc and that serotonin is huge. That dopamine is better. That norepinephrine, huge. That GABA, huge. Okay. So in, in the system, it's the zinc that is the key player. Okay, And I get what you're saying. You need all the pieces. You need some level of all the pieces without, without question. You do. But the prime movers are still that zinc and B6. Okay. You get more bang for your buck, if you will, with, with zinc and B6. Right. And so, Even, so I'm so proud of them. Wikipedia actually said if you have depression, nutrient treatment for depression was zinc. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. That's interesting. So with, with B with B6, uh, do you use the active B6, the paradoxal 5 phosphate, or do you use the precursor, the just B6 or or combination? Use a combination. Use a combination in equal doses because there's some that feel that they cancel each other out. There's a lot of mixed. Info. So a combination equal doses. <laughs> is, 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 well, that's why I'm talking because I know you know because um, this is what you yeah, do. It, it's we're talking about functional ratios, okay? And this is about the system that's in play um, at a molecular level, right? So do you use T3 thyroid hormone? Or do you use the precursor form T4? And why are they both there? Why are you testing one versus the other? What's the point? Why not just give T3, for example? Okay. Well, you've got to have one converting into the other. If you have nothing to turn something into the something that you need, then you're not going to have any of it. Okay? Right, right, right. You've got to produce it. So it's the same for many of these other agents, including B6 and B5P. Which do you use more of and how does that ratio work depends on the person. Are there other issues like yeast toxicity in the GI tract? Are there other issues such as a sensor, certain sensitivities? Um, are there other issues such as the stimulatory effect, which is very idiosyncratic for any given patient? Some people are, are too hyper-stimulated by one form versus the other. These are all kind of indicative pieces that determine how you create that balance. Okay? Um, yeah. And so we look at all those pieces. When we're putting together the protocols for any given person. That, that makes sense. I like that analogy with T T4 and, and T3, sort of having that balance and let the body 
determine how much T3 it needs without overriding it with just straight T3. Essentially, that's a similar principle, I guess, that you apply to giving D6. But before knowing the potential idiosyncrasies of that individual, do you at first generically give equal dose of B6 and paradoxal biphosphate, the active? No. Okay. All right. Just checking. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. All right. Well, Dr. Mensa, we're about out of time. Like I could literally pick your brain all day on this topic, as you could probably imagine. Haven't really gotten to talk very much about overmethylation, but I'd love to have you back sometime so we could, you know, give the listeners some good overmethylation takeaways as well. I'm sure we could do a deep dive on that. You know, well, probably yeah. won't be as long, but yeah. Since we, we just had the Super Bowl, Super Bowl I, I want to give out a shout out to all the overmethylators who were playing in that game. Okay. <laughs> These big giant fellows that you see that are walking trees, yeah. guess what? Methyl turns into muscle. Yeah, so yeah. you gigantic dude or dudette walking down the street, okay, you get pretty well bet that's an overmethylated individual. Yeah. So many of our sports, we could have fun talking about how to design a sports team just based on methylation status on paper. Okay. But um, let's just say that quite often the, the, the people who um, you want in a high pressure situation have got to be calm, cool, and determined. That's what I love about the Super Bowl because we can talk methylation just based upon that. Mm. Watching quarterbacks in, in old ancient days go back and forth and change the, the course of the game four times within five minutes in different directions. That's a battle of methylation. That's all I'm going to say about that. I love it. Uh, that's awesome. Well, Dr. Menzer, before we go, um, maybe tell the listeners where they could find you and your work. Um, www.mensa, that's M-E-N-S-A-H, mensamedical.com. Um, we're also uh, on all the different social media outlets, um, YouTube is a great place to watch our videos that talk about methylation, both under and over methylation. Um, we've got our Facebook team and, you know, certainly a phone call at telephone number 630-256-8308, 630-256-8308 for our main clinic. We have our outreach clinic sites in um, Maryland, in Florida, Northern and Southern California, Arizona, um, and of course, uh, Michigan. And then our main clinic here in Chicago. So if you have any questions, feel free to give us a call. We'd be happy to answer. But in the meantime, take a look at our, our YouTube videos. They're, they're lengthy because I can talk a lot because there's so much to talk about in these subjects. But of course, yeah. 15 minutes at a time over the course of a few days and pop some popcorn. And then if you've got questions, give us a call. Awesome. Well, Dr. Menza, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Dov, thank you. You've been, you're very uh, right, informative young man. And I want to thank you for some really fabulous questions and gave an opportunity to really kind of dig deep into the subject. And uh, your methylation works very well for you, young man. Well, that about finishes off my three-part methylation series with Dr. Mensa. Now, I'm hoping to get him back on the show so we could do yet another series, only next time hopefully focus a bit more on overmethylation, right? So as you guys could tell, Dr. Mensa has an endless supply of clinical experience to draw from, and his level of expertise and depth of knowledge in the area of methylation is extremely rare. Like few practitioners truly understand how these complex mechanisms work, 
and how they can and really should be applied in a clinical setting. And sadly, many make the claim that they do, yet aren't educated nor experienced enough to even know what they don't know in this particular area. So with that said, I'm so glad Dr. Mensa is out there educating practitioners on this type of approach to methylation issues and mental health challenges as a whole. Right? And as we, as we all could agree, it's much needed today. Now on another note, I wanted to share with you guys some exciting stuff I have coming down the pike. I have some amazing guests coming up that are just so generous about sharing the knowledge they have. And as you guys now know, I don't let my guests give shallow answers to complex questions, right? I mean, I don't do what I like to refer to as cliff notes podcasting. And I'm, I'm sure you guys can relate, but personally, nothing frustrates me more than to be listening to a podcast with a guest who's an expert on a topic that I'm super into, yet the host you know, is throwing out nothing but softball questions with no follow-up questions either. And to be honest, that drives me nuts, right? You have an amazing guest and you have them at your disposal. Take advantage of it, right? Don't throw softball questions. So just know that will never be the case on any episode of Root of the Cause Radio. I don't do Cliff Notes podcasting and I dig and dig and I get your questions and my questions answered. And I take as deep a dive on a topic as is needed, right? So please stay tuned for what's coming up soon. But until then, take care, everyone. This podcast for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast disclaims responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties for guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.